Isn't it grand to be able to come together this Sunday afternoon and shortly now into the evening hours of this same first day of the week? As often as we read about that Lord's Day, that first day of the week spoken of in Revelation 1, verses 8, 9, and 10, we're reminded, aren't we, of the special occasion that really has brought us together to offer acts of reverence and direct them to God and to do that in a way that we trust is pleasing, honorable, and acceptable in His sight. In Psalm 89, verse 7, we read, interestingly about the reverence that, of course, should be in your mind and mine that we direct His way, greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. That's exactly how you and I have come together this afternoon. As you know, we are in, a, in the midst of a series of lessons and really drawing it to a conclusion tonight as we look at the qualifications of elders. We began this series last Lord's Day morning as we looked at some of the specifics and the terms and the identifying marks of the eldership. This morning we turned our attention to the first of a consideration of their qualifications. We found 16 of them that we at least listed and cast the spotlight upon them. Tonight we'll pick up right where we left off this morning looking at some additional considerations relative to what the Bible demands concerning their qualifications. These opening remarks... I simply present as an introduction in as much as it lists in a broad way many of those things you and I have seen already to this point. Certainly it would seem to me fair to say that as we give thought to the eldership, we certainly should be very thankful for men who serve as elders. A great responsibility rests on their shoulders, and we're looking at one of the attributes that gives us an impression of that. Notice all the qualifications that these men are supposed to not only exhibit, but they set before us examples of how we, of course, as Christians, can behave and interact one with the other. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, we're going to look tonight at two or several more groupings of their qualifications. Let's, let's get to the matter at hand. As we look at these qualifications, we come now to one I've simply entitled demeanor. You noticed we looked at a few of the considerations in 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. Tonight, Brother Glenn read for us from Titus chapter 1, and we will look at a few considerations from each one of those lists in the further considerations of the lesson tonight. First of all, you'll notice that Paul especially says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 that an elder must be apt to teach. That's the way the King James Version presents that thought to you and to me. Basically, it has to do with this. The man must have the ability and the skill with respect to the teaching. The teaching of what? Obviously, the Word of God. Clearly, in all of that, you and I can immediately appreciate an implication that this man must have a working knowledge of the Bible an understanding of its major premises and the truths found therein, and an ability and a courage to share the truth of that Word. He must be apt to teach. It is interesting to notice that it doesn't say the context, whether it be of a private nature or a public nature. Maybe this man is very skilled at public teaching and preaching, and that's fine. Maybe he has a greater skill and ability with respect to private one-on-one -on -one teaching of the Word of God. But the fact is, he must be motivated by consideration of its truthfulness and has an ability, an ability that's been witnessed in terms of sharing and teaching that Word of God. I would ask you to notice several passages that highlight throughout the nature of God's Word the importance of its teaching. 
the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men. And who shall be able to teach others also? To borrow the language of 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. I've asked you to also think about that text that the Lord Himself presented in Matthew 28. Specifically verse 20, the last verse in that book. Notice that not only was there to be teaching in light of what would result in baptism, but even after that, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now those words were spoken to the apostles, but as they faithfully taught that word, you and I can realize today what a blessed responsibility that the elder has to teach that word. On to the next one. What about number 18? Paul wrote to Timothy, especially this phrase in verse number 7. This man is to have a good report of those that are without. That too has a very powerful ring to it, doesn't it? As you and I develop it, might I ask that we do it this way. The original statement seems to reflect the idea that there is evidence, there is a witness on the part of this man's life that even those who are not believers at least would have a respect for the way he conducts himself, for the belief system that he uses to guide and operate his life. A good report from those that are without. Paul's reference to those without appears to be those that are unbelievers. Even they have a degree and modicum of respect for the characteristic of this man. That immediately gives us an implication, doesn't it, that the church as this marvelous entity purchased with the blood of Christ... These men lead in the local assembly and carry out the services in the way that would be appropriate and their reputation is carefully looked upon by those without as representative perhaps of the entirety of the group. You and I appreciate so well, the Holy Spirit again said, a good report of those that are without. As you and I develop that thought, notice in 1 Peter 2 verses 11 and following, May I suggest that each of us as Christians are admonished to conduct ourselves and so live in a way that on that great day of judgment, the day of visitation as it's referenced there, would be a time when even others who will have obeyed the gospel as a result of our influence and our example, that what a great glorying day that will be. So far as you and I have looked at 18 of them, come with me to number 19. You noticed it was read just a moment ago as Brother Glenn shared it with us from Titus 1. Specifically, the phrase is used, holding fast the faithful word. We've already highlighted he must be apt to teach, but now we notice a different verb is used. To hold fast. That literally means to hold with closeness, to hold closely. Or furthermore, to exhibit a rather strong devotion to... This man doesn't just teach something that's only a trivial or minor concern to him. He literally has based his life upon it. It is the foundational aspect of what he is and what he hopes to accomplish, not only in himself, but in those whom he influences. He holds fast the faithful word. You and I, as we think about the charge given to elders, notice they are to speak that word, and they are, of course, going to give account on the day of judgment relative to the flock over which they rule and lead. To hold fast that faithful word challenges us in appreciations like this. An elder has to realize this is not just another book. He must recognize this is the Word of God. 
and it must be handled rightly. 2 Timothy 2.15 still reminds us, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As an elder thus seeks to ensure that it's handled rightly, he watches with care over what's taught publicly to make sure as much as he can that it is true and faithful. As he handles rightly that word, I've asked you to consider the famous statement by Jesus in John 6 verse 63. The words that I speak unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. The Lord made that statement. The word that He has spoken, an elder appreciates and recognizes and dutifully upholds that attribute and character of the Word of God. He turns to this book as he makes decisions. He in fact searches it with care so that that which is done will always be in harmony with what is the will of God. As you finish number 18 with me, might we then look at number 19? Or rather, I'm sorry, number 20, bottom of that slide. Titus went on to hear these words from Paul. Verse number 9 of Titus chapter 1, "...holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers." I've simply summarized that latter statement in that fashion. An elder must be a man who by virtue of courage and who by virtue of conviction is able to stand and defend the truth. He will not allow it to be run over. He will not allow it to be sidestepped or others to treat it with disrepute. He is able to exhort and to convict those that oppose it. You and I can feel secure in that we're blessed with elders. And yea, we're blessed with faithful men of varying sorts here at the congregation. If someone were to teach what's false from this pulpit, I feel sure that it would be called upon and checked and it would in fact be questioned and perhaps even in the public assembly from which it is spoken so that it would not impact the lives of any of us in a negative way. An elder could lead the charge with respect to the very nature of exhorting and convicting those who oppose it. The original Greek language references those who contradict it. There is one thing about the false ideas of men. It always contradicts that which is of God, doesn't it? And an elder with strength can in fact set forth those contradictions and ensure that the truth is encouraged. I would ask you to think about Acts 17 verses 3 and 4. As Paul stood with such courage there in Thessalonica and preached the Word of God, he opened and alleged with regard to the Word of God. That means he opened and defended it. We appreciate an elder with such conviction could well do the same. Defending the truth of God's Word. Didn't Paul say in Philippians 1.17 that I am set for the defense of the gospel? As you and I close that particular slide looking at some of these attributes of demeanor, it does bring us to note there were some additional things that, that the Holy Spirit delivered to us. Let's look at them as we come to the top of the next slide. For one of the things we now immediately appreciate, that this office of the elder is of sufficient importance, and it is of sufficient nature and character that even there are demands with respect to that man's family. Let us spend a few moments and think about the way that those also are presented. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first thing that you might note with me from verse number 2 is this one. Paul especially wrote it like this. 
A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Let's think about that for just a moment, utilizing not only that passage, but the one in Titus to help us appreciate and think with care about that qualification. You'll notice, among other things, it says this, a female is not authorized by God to serve as an elder. Must be the husband, a man. You'll appreciate of one wife. That immediately tells us a bachelor is not qualified to serve as an elder. A good man he might be, but he cannot meet this qualification. Furthermore, we appreciate a man that's a polygamist, one who is involved in an unscriptural marriage currently. All of them would not be suitable then meeting this qualification. The husband of one wife. As we shall find shortly, there are many important reasons for thinking of it in that way. She, his wife will have a great bearing on his capability to serve with skill in the eldership. As you and I develop that more thoroughly, you'll notice that inasmuch as we have looked at these various qualifications, and notice we've now come to number 21, we see in these present tense demands, do we not? Apt to teach, patient, considerations to which we turned our attention this morning, it thus seems that this one would also fit into that criterion and category. A man must be the husband of one wife. You'll notice that that would seem to cast a spotlight, or at least a question, upon the attribute of a widower. Maybe that would be something that you and I could think about in a more extended way on another occasion. But it does seem that this is an ongoing present demand for a man to be a married man in order to serve as an elder. What about number 22? What else about this gentleman's family? May I ask you to notice, borrowing the language of 1 Timothy 3, it says in particular, verse number 4, one that ruleth well his own house. Now that one immediately begs some interesting consideration, doesn't it? In fact, as it occurred to me, you and I find other passages that speak about the nature of rulership in the house. Now, we know the husband is the head of the wife, Ephesians 5, 21 and 22, and we understand the thoroughness that that passage often brings to consideration. There are passages like 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, that speak about women are to guide the house. God has given her the ability and the charge to, to guide and the actual Greek word has an idea of rulership within it. You and I know well that a woman, she often is blessed in such a different way than a man to carry on the ongoing daily duties of the house. And we should be thankful that he's given to the woman that kind of capability. What does this mean in this instance? In what way can we appreciate that the wife in some way is, has a ruling ability in the house? But notice here, this elder, this man, it is expressly said he must rule well his own house. It certainly seems that the emphasis and thrust to be taken from that is this one. This man must be and exhibit the spiritual leadership that would be appropriate in his house. His wife and children recognize he has set the trail and the course for the spiritual demeanor and well-being of those that are in that household. He is the spiritual leader. 
He is the one who in fact sets before them the nature and character of what God demands of the husband as the spiritual leader of the house. Is that seen in this man to rule well his own house? It seems as though that word well does bring to bear the thought of this spiritual consideration that is given to him. Wasn't it said in regard to Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. As Paul stated that with such clarity and clearness, he lifted high the thought of that leadership that the man, the husband, the father is to have in that family. The idea here is, has this man exhibited that? As you and I look at this one that I've numbered, number 22, we appreciate that it seems to lead directly to the next one. Ruling well his own house. What about the next one? Titus writes it like this. Brother Glenn read it just a moment ago. Titus chapter 1, verse number 6. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children... We notice now that we have arrived at maybe one that has offered as much an opportunity as any for discussion, maybe in the mind of some, even controversy. Having faithful children, a number of questions. How many children? One or more. I think that'll do it. In fact, you and I can use the Word of God to help us appreciate that very thought. If you want to hold your finger here... Just turn back to Timothy, and let's let Paul's writing of Timothy help us appreciate maybe that point. You and I remember that we have just read about having faithful children. Back in 1 Timothy chapter number 3, we notice the statement made, ruling well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. So this word children has appeared twice in these qualifications. Look over two chapters to 1 Timothy 5. Here's a context in which the same word appears. Verse number 4, But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents. The consideration. So are we to look upon that and say that only if a woman has at least two kids are they responsible for her well-being? If a woman has only one child, is that one exempt from taking care of her as a widow when she is old and unable to care for herself? Well, such is ludicrous. We understand the word child, the word children, is used in a way in which we can easily see the appreciation, and it's used not only in our common English language that way, even in the Bible it's used that way. There, the word children... If a widow has one child, that one child, by the duty of God, is responsible to take care of her. Look at some other places that that thought appears. I would ask you to think about Deuteronomy 25.5 in comparison to Matthew 22.24. The reason that's significant is this. In the Deuteronomy 25 passage, statement was made about, again, the consideration of children. However, when you come to the Matthew 22 passage, it's quoted, and their son is used. So even they understood that children meant one or more. Look at another example in Hosea 11, verse number 1, Old Testament passage. We notice their reference to Jesus as a children of God. But how many children did God have? One. Jesus is the only son. 
And yet, as we come to Matthew 2.15, that text is quoted and applied specifically to Jesus as the only child. You and I can be safe in saying, if a man has but one child, he can still be qualified to serve as an elder. However, it goes beyond that. Not only is children mentioned, it says faithful children. What does it mean to describe their children as faithful? Maybe you and I can consider and develop it like this by observing. Notice it doesn't say all of His children must be faithful. That would go beyond what the Holy Spirit has included. The Holy Spirit knows the word all. He's used it a lot, but it isn't found here. So you and I in this instance no doubt have the liberty to exercise a bit of judgment. If a man has four children and three are faithful Christians and one is not, does he have faithful children? Could he still be qualified, everything else being satisfied, to serve in the eldership? If he has eight children, seven of them are faithful Christians and one is not, could he still be qualified? Now what if he has five children and three of them are not faithful Christians? Three of them have not submitted their life to faithful devotion to the truth. Would that say something about his leadership ability? Would it say something about the fact that he, in one way or another, has not instilled within them the nature of what faithfulness would involve? That does seem like a fair assessment. Surely you and I can say, as we look at any particular situation, one would expect a goodly number of whatever children he has to be faithful. And certainly that means they would have had to reach the age to where they, by their own choice, could obey the gospel. And they could, of course, then exhibit faithful service to the church of our Lord, having faithful children. That isn't all the Holy Spirit had to say about that. So if you and I look upon that phrase or that clause in that way, might we end that slide and turn to the next one like this? Having faithful children? What about the thing at the top? What does that say about children that have left the house? This gentleman, we would expect, would have had great control and great opportunity to influence and lead his children. Obviously, he may well have made them go to church services or at least encourage them in a direct way. What about when they leave the home? They reach that age and they now begin to build a home or a house of their own. Now what might we say? It seems fair to make this set of ideas, drawing this passage together with a few others. First of all, it would seem that immediately upon leaving the house, if this person, that individual, that child drops into unfaithfulness, maybe that says something about the forcefulness with which that person had been involved in any faithfulness before. Maybe that says something then about the character and degree of that man's leadership. But what if that child is faithful for a while, perhaps even a good while after leaving the house of the elder or the one who is at least considering being an elder? What then might we say later if that child becomes unfaithful, perhaps drops into apostasy? it does seem we would have to consider that each individual must make a decision for himself. After some number of years, after some period of time, if that individual then makes choices that are ungodly and choices that are filled with sin and iniquity, what was true in the earlier formative years 
may not then be something that reflects badly upon that man as the elder. Maybe he did rightly all that he could, but that person, that child has fallen into that way of life. It seems to me then one has to look at what happens after those years when the child leaves the house. If faithfulness is maintained for a while, that speaks well to that man as possibly an elder. However, you and I could also notice it does, of course, lead us to think about this one. What about the next one, number 25 or 24 on that slide? Having his children in subjection with all gravity. We understand that as long as the child is living at home, we would expect that those children should have been brought up to respect his authority, to respect that inherit in him as the leader of the house and the home. That seems to be easily appreciated from this passage as well as a host of others. But you'll notice as we develop it this way, it seems as though at least the Greek phraseology has within it the notion of dignity. It has within it the notion of seriousness. Those children need to respect Him, not just as a buddy, not just as a pal, if you please, but to respect the authority inherent in Him as the Father, the leader. Are they brought up to respect that idea? If so, they're brought up in a way to respect the inherent authority vested in Him by the God of heaven. And in so doing, likely He could then have that opportunity to help others appreciate that same kind of authority inherited in the Word of God given to those, of course, in His leadership as the church. Having His children in subjection with all gravity. You and I then can observe... If a man's children seem to not pay much mind, if they don't seem to have much respect for what he has to say, that man's not qualified to serve as an elder. He hasn't disciplined them in a way to where they respect such authority. You'll notice here they are to be in subjection with all gravity. It is interesting to consider the number of ways family matters can then have a bearing upon a man's ability to lead for they say something about his leadership in the home. Look at the next one, number 25. There's even more said about these children. Titus reads it like this. Titus 1 verse 6, Having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. A man's children. You'll notice this strong statement is made. Literally in the Greek text, this means not accused of debauchery, profligacy, dissipation, or rebellion. Now surely we would anticipate that so long as that child was living in the home of that man, none of that could have been happening, at least with his condoning or approval. But what about after a child leaves the house? Again, for a period of time, if faithfulness is observed or seen, but then a child who is now a grown adult comes to behave like this, you and I would appreciate that may not necessarily reflect upon his leadership. Maybe this child has been caught in the snares of the devil. Maybe this child, after some period of time, has come to dwell in this kind of way. It does seem, again, that we're left with a consideration of judgment. Is it necessarily the case that it reflects back on his leadership while the person was living at home? It seems as if that's true, then the man's not qualified. But if it doesn't, maybe there's room for discussion. 
And maybe there's room for consideration. We each are guaranteed that every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Romans 14, 12. That child is going to answer to God, just like the elder, of course, for himself will. I would submit to you that it looks like, based on all of these things, if a man's children fall into apostasy almost immediately after leaving the house, that man probably is not qualified to serve as an elder. But if there's a period of faithfulness in which the exhibition of right living is in place, it looks like maybe there's possibility that the person's own degree of consideration relative to individual judgment takes control. Maybe in light of those things, why don't we come to what's next? Not only do the children of this man have a bearing on his qualification, what if we think for a moment, once the slide turns, why don't we think for just a moment about the nature of these matters? I thought it wise, at least at this point, to interject those comments at the top of the slide. Just like we don't expect a man to be humanly perfect, we learned this morning blameless didn't mean sinless perfection. So too we must be careful and not to expect the man's wife or children to be sinlessly perfect, for the Holy Spirit doesn't say that. We would expect the children are going to make their mistakes, but do they in fact still live in such a way that these other considerations and these other qualifications are met? What about the man's wife? Notice there's much said about her. I have called to your attention these statements, four of them in particular. In 1 Timothy chapter number 3, please notice as I read one of the verses that we find. Verse number 11 and verse number 12. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. So here we learn that even the wife of this man, there are certain things that would be expected of her. Let us look at these one at, one at a time. First, she must be grave. Maybe you and I think about that word with ideas, somewhat negative in character admittedly, but notice what the word rig originally meant. It carries with it the idea of seriousness, dignity, and honor. It brings the notion, apparently, of even what would include not only her demeanor, but that which would include her dress. Does she dress in a dignified, modest way? Is she an example to those who would, let's say, be ladies or younger women in the congregation? Could she serve as an appropriate individual, characteristic of those that would be godly in nature? We remember so well Proverbs 31 that speaks about a virtuous woman does she have the attributes of virtuosity? Does she carry out those kinds of things in a way that's developed in a passage like this one? Not only gravity, but notice it is said that she must not be a slanderer. That literally means not a gossiper. Not one who is given to sharing just, quote, news that's more or less nothing but gossip. She's not given to that. She recognizes that there is a truth and there's a demeanor to be upheld and she strives never ever to slander the reputation of others apart from what is just straightforward criticism if needed. By the way, that's good advice for any of us, isn't it? The book of Proverbs encourages all of us to recognize the folly and the sin of tail-bearing. 
Read Proverbs chapter 16. Not only these two, look at number 28 with me. She is required to be sober. We've so often noted that that word in modern English language does not carry the same basic meaning as it did then. The word sober comes from the word here that basically starts with the notion of not giving to wine. We learned this morning that the man cannot be given to wine, neither can his wife. And we would expect that none, no member of his family would be, of course. But you'll notice this seems to furthermore bring the notion of sound judgment. Do you see in her the attribute of a faithful wife? Does she support him? Does she encourage her husband? Does she rule the house in the sense that God has allowed her to do it? 1 Timothy 5, 14, does she rule her house well? Does she take care of the duties given to a mother and a wife? Maybe all of that highlights itself in the final one. The Holy Spirit simply said, faithful in all things. Surely we appreciate that would mean faithful to her husband, faithful to her children. She ensures that they're taken care of and their needs are provided. Faithfulness, of course, to the things of God. It's a bit of a general term, isn't it? Does she exhibit the characteristics of all the particular offices in her life of faithfulness? We would certainly anticipate that as such, she along with her husband will have a great opportunity to influence very, very many as he serves as an elder and she is his wife. May I say that this list goes on because the next one is really one that will demand both of them. The Holy Spirit put it like this, given to hospitality. I find that intriguing, don't you? One of the qualifications of an elder is he must be given to hospitality. Let's develop that thought like this. It literally means hospitable. It means generous to guests that would come his way. You and I notice that there's one place where surely his wife would have to be of help to him. If he invites someone home to study the Bible or to have conversation, she, as a hospitable person assistant to him, will probably have to be a part in that, providing perhaps liquids or perhaps snacks or food or at least a house that's warm and welcoming, given to hospitality. As you think about the nature of hospitality, I find it interesting to contemplate what happened way back in Genesis chapter 18. You remember the scene? There, it was Abraham. Visitors had come his way. He invited them to come to the tent, and in fact, he encouraged Sarah, his wife, prepare food for them, and she did it. How often then would a husband and wife team, as elder and again his, and his wife, be able to share hospitality in a warm, inviting way and maybe teach the gospel, or at least assist in the encouragement of the church? Given to hospitality is one of the qualifications. Let's go even further. What about number 31? You'll notice in the statement I've asked you to consider in 1 Timothy 3, 3, patient is especially listed. This man must be a patient man. The word patient in this context literally means gentle, kind, and courteous. Is he friendly? Does he have the attribute of gentleness about him? Now notice, we are not saying he can't get worked up. There are cases when his anger might develop, but again, it mustn't be a quick temper. 
But in general, is this man a gentle person? Is he able to be approached? As the elder, people are going to need to feel comfortable coming to him and sharing concerns with him, talking to him about matters resting on their mind. He is their shepherd. And just like a shepherd so much cares about his sheep, so too this man cares about the flock and he would want them to come and lay upon him the burdens of which he can offer counsel or assistance. Is he kind? Is he courteous? Number 32. This one is so very intriguing in many ways. You'll notice we read the following in Titus 1.8, A lover of good. Now I would ask you to notice that the King James translation reads it, A lover of good men. But the translator supplied the word men. Literally it means a lover of what's good. That's a very general description, don't you think? Do you see in this man one who loves what's good? Does he strive to conduct himself and his family in a way that pursues what's good? That's one of those things I think we generally can appreciate in life of those that we see. We see whether he seems to live his life following what's good. Here it's listed as a qualification. A lover of what is good. Is he a faithful attender at the services? For we know that is a good thing. It's commanded of all of those that would be faithful children of God. Does he lift high the banner of what is contained in the Bible in every respect? For this is ultimately, of course, what's good. The goodness of God seen in his life, in his demeanor. Number 33. We notice Titus 1.8 says he must be just. Just. Let's develop that like this. He upholds what is right. That's literally what that word means. He cannot be persuaded that what's wrong is acceptable. He will stand up and defend what's right and he will oppose it and he will encourage others to do the same. You can't run roughshod over this man for he trusts in what's right and he's going to live his life according to it. Reminds me a bit about Joshua's words. What about you? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, he will encourage others to do the same, but ultimately he'll leave that to their decision. But as for himself, I'm going to follow what the Lord says. Joshua 24, 15. We come to number 34. And maybe you're relieved as the final one. Number 34. Holy. One last qualification in all the lists in Peter, Timothy, and Titus. Holiness. It is demanded that this man be holy. You and I might pause to recognize though that every child of God is holy in the sense set forth in the Word of God. But there appears to be here a special idea that he upholds and he appreciates what is sanctioned by the law of God. We see it in his life. We see it in what He says. We see it in where He goes. We see it in the things He upholds and does. We see the attribute of holiness. Number 34. As we close this lesson and close this series, we've looked at a number of qualifications of elders. I believe we're impressed. Look at how serious it is to serve as an elder. Look at all the things that He and His family have to appreciate in terms of qualification. 
But on the other side of that, isn't it special that there are men who do meet these qualifications and men who you and I can look to as our leaders and those who will guide us along the pathway of rightness? We're blessed to have elders. May we lift up their hands and encourage them. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 11 through 13, encourage all of us to encourage them in the work that they do. As you and I think about the eldership, let's close our lesson like this. We've looked at the, tonight three more groupings. I entitled them demeanor, family matters, and general characteristics. When you couple these with those we consider this morning and those we looked at last Sunday, doesn't it remind us that these gentlemen that lead us as our elders, as our shepherds, as our pastors and bishops, these are men who truly are watching for our souls. I would submit to you that we will take up next Sunday looking at deacons. We'll strive to distinguish the works that they do and appreciate what the Bible has to say about them for tonight. As you think about your life and as I consider my own, where do you stand before God? Is all well with your soul? You realize that we want the truth. All of us should desire it. And if you find yourself separated from it, if you aren't walking hand in hand with God, let tonight be the moment of change. If you need to respond initially to the gospel call of invitation, we'd be delighted to help you and assist you. If you need to return to your first love, we'd be honored to pray for you. If tonight we could be of help to you, don't delay, but come even now while together we stand and sing the selected song.